This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. But this morning we're in Mark 8, and um, it's a biggie. Uh, maybe the people who are away on weekends away or various things knew, because this week it's about God and money. It's funny, you, when you mention those two, two words together in the same sentence, you already think, oh my word, I feel nervous. We basically can have three different attitudes when you hear the words God and money. You think, God, it's your job to fill my wallet. I open my wallet, but you fill it. You can say, I'm closing my wallet, this is not getting my money. Or you can say, actually, I'm opening my wallet and give it away. I don't, my challenge is, I'm not after your money this morning. Do you want to hear that? I'm not after your money this morning, I'm after your hearts. I'm after your hearts this morning. But if I touch your wallet in attempting to reach your heart, perhaps it's because your wallet and your heart are too close. So if I upset you this morning, my intention is not to upset you. My intention is to reach your heart, actually... God touch our hearts, just as Jesus encountered uh, the guy that we're going to read about in Mark 8. Is money a bad thing or a good thing? Okay, in one sense, if you've been around church at all, you think, oh, it's not a fair question. But interestingly, I I observe two approaches to money in churches. One is that um, being wealthy is a sign of God's blessing upon you. Being wealthy is a sign that you're uh, walking with God, uh, you're trusting God with your finances, with your life, and he's blessing you. Yeah? And that's a sort of predominant kind of view. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, that's a predominant view. That's just, um, it, it's sometimes on its extreme end called prosperity gospel, on its extreme end. And then there's the other side, which is actually, you can't really accrue or gather great wealth except by exploiting people. That actually to, to have a lot of wealth is an, an act of injustice. That, you, you know, that if you're wealthy by definition, you must have been slightly dishonest, slightly selfish, slightly greedy. And uh, if you push that to really on the, one, the far side, you don't probably need to worry about that one. But it's kind of like left-wing, as it were, kind of liberation theology, who say, actually, eh, these people are poor because they're exploited. And that's kind of, you get those two things in the church. Now, the question is, what does Jesus think? What does Jesus think? Is he left-wing, or is he right-wing? You know, is he prosperity, or is he, is he exploitation? Where, 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 does he, where does he drop? And it's, it's interesting, if you, if you, if you, one of Jesus' most famous um, statements on money, which we're going to read in the, in the passage in a moment, is this. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Well, what is he saying there? It, it sounds like he's jumping on one side or the other, doesn't it? <clears throat> Does it? 
It sounds like he's saying money's bad, doesn't he? But actually, if you read through, <clears throat> that actually we're, getting to, we're, we're going to find out actually what, what's Jesus got to say about money. So if you've got a Bible, uh, we're in Mark 10, verse 17. As Jesus was start setting out on his journey, where's he going? Mark 10, where's he going? Jerusalem. He said, uh, he said to, to Peter, I'm going, I'm going to go to the, the Jerusalem, and then I'm going to be handed over to the pre chief priests and rulers, and they're going to betray me, I'm going to be crucified. He's on his last journey to the cross, that's where he's going. Jesus set out on his journey, it's not, it's interesting, <laughs> on his way, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? If you know your Bible, that question's been asked before, not in Mark's Gospel, but it's the start of the story of the Good Samaritan. A, a lawyer comes up to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It was kind of a popular question, and Jesus bats it back to the lawyer and says, well, what do you think? And he says, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, who's my neighbor? And tells the Good Samaritan. So that's where it's, you might have heard that question before, but he asks the same question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not fraud, honor your father and mother. I'll just say that again for my kids. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept since my youth or since I was a boy. And Jesus, I love this, Jesus looked at him and loved him, and said to him, one thing you lack. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Disheart disheartened by the saying, the man, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And then Jesus looks at us, looks at these disciples, says, Jesus looks around and says to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Then Jesus said to, him, said to them again, he makes an illustration. Don't get it, guys. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, who can be saved then? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not for God. For all things are possible with God. Father, we just pray as we look at this passage that you would challenge our hearts, challenge our motives. I pray that as in all these things that we would uh, love you more and loving you more, it would change and address how we live. I pray that we wouldn't just evaluate my words or the words in the scripture and then go out unchanged, but I pray that the words that I speak and the words that are in the scriptures would evaluate us. So Jesus is on his way to the crucifixion and the, the young man comes up and asks him, what must I do to eternal life? If you read the other passages, if you read this story in the other Gospels, you learn some other things about the, the man. You learn in this passage that he's young and he's rich. He's also a ruler. So this is a story of the rich young ruler. He's a ruler because presumably wealth and influence, uh, wealth buys influence. And it's, he asks this question, doesn't he? What must I do to inherit? Now, it might have been that was a common way to ask the question, what's really God all about? But actually, I think he asks that question, what must I do to inherit? Because what might have happened to him? He might have inherited. He's probably young and rich. So either he's the wolf of Wall Street. I don't recommend you watch that film, although I have watched the clips and the Oscar nominations. Um, 
you know, Eva's, he's, he's a kind of wolf of Wall Street who's made lots of money, uh, getting rich quick, doing whatever he's done, or he's probably inherited his money. Now, you've got to understand in this culture, in, Je- in the culture of Jesus' time, if you uh, had money, it was seen as God's blessing. I've just read in my readings the story of Job, and obviously he's, he's stripped of all his money. And his friends say, well, that's the reason why God stripped you of your money is because you're bad, because you've done bad stuff. God's not with you. But actually, the, the whole view uh, of money in Jesus' time was that if you had, if you had money, <clears throat> it's because you'd lived a good life and God had blessed you. And if you didn't have money, it's because you'd lived a bad life. Now imagine what you feel if you inherited your money. What do you feel about yourself? You might feel, well, I'm a bit of a fake. You might feel everyone's treating me with respect and, and honor because I've got money, therefore I apparently living under God's blessing. But you might feel a bit of a fake. And I think that he's probably examining himself. People are, you know, he's a ruler, a man of influence, and he probably thinks, man, I haven't done anything for this. It's just come to me. I haven't really done anything. I, um, and he's probably asking the question, well, maybe my dad lived under God's favor, or my uncle, or whoever he got his money from, my mom, likely that women had money in that time, uh, but, but maybe, maybe he's, he's saying about himself, well, why have I got money? Maybe, my, maybe I'm a bit of a fake. And I think he's really got a question about himself. Well, am I really good enough? Am I really good enough to, to be blessed by God? Is there, is, is, am I missing something? Is, is there something extra I can do? So that we get his question, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, as when I preached on the Good Samaritan, you could say, well, this would be a really good point to, to do a little gospel presentation, and what would you say? You say, we well, can't do anything to inherit. It just comes to you, doesn't it? You can't do anything to inherit. And let me explain the gospel. Jesus has come, lived the life that you couldn't live, died the death you deserve to die. He has done it so that you can inherit. His death has meant you could inherit. And you'd think at that point, Jesus would say, well, this is really near to the heart of what I'm about. Let me just explain that to you. But he, he doesn't do that. He doesn't um, ask him that question, uh, and he doesn't do a five, uh, little two-minute presentation about death. his death means that we inherit God's blessing. He actually asks a question followed by a clarification. Why do you call me good? Only the one God is good. He asks the question, why do you call me good? And then makes a statement, only the one God is good. Everybody who would have listened at that time would have agreed that God is good. In our culture, what would people, if you say God is good, what do people think? No. It's really been interesting for me in the journey in the last 20 years from being a situation where people would generally say that God is good, but I don't like the church. That was Bono or whatever. 20 years ago, Billy Connolly. But now, actually, people don't even think God is good. They think God is judgmental, he's pernicious, he's finger-pointing, he flies off the handle, he's all about wrath. People have got this idea that God's not good. In our society, people think, oh, you know, God's not good. And we, we judge God. We say, God, you're not good, rather than judge ourselves. Actually, we know that we're not good. It's much easier to point your finger at God than it is to uh, examine yourself. But this man, I don't think he's doing that. Uh, when he calls Jesus good, uh, when he uh, calls Jesus good, he's, he's making a statement. So Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. I think Jesus is in that statement saying, why do you call me good? What do you think he's trying to draw out? Turn to your neighbor. Oh, you can answer. What's he trying to draw out? Why do you call me good? 
He could, brilliant, yeah. He could be drawing out, do you think I'm good? Is that what the phrase you're using? In fact, it was rare in those days for people to call a rabbi or a teacher good because good was a phrase uh, uh, that was an adjective that was used for God. So you wouldn't call him good teacher. It was quite rare to do that. He could also be evaluating what's the man's idea of goodness and badness. He's kind of questioning what's the man's idea of goodness and badness. And so he asks him a question which you would expect him to ask a Jewish person to evaluate his idea of good and badness because what was goodness for a Jewish person was what? Keeping the rules. Goodness for a Jewish person simply was keeping the rules. So they created more and more rules. 625, I think, they've counted. There's obviously the Ten Commandments and then they added 625 more just to make sure that you've got it really clear. So if you were a Jew, you were about keeping the rules. So it was interesting this morning, I was having my, uh, uh, my breakfast... That the Jews in North Manchester, where we used to live, are very concerned about they can't work on the Sabbath. So this is today, 21st century Manchester. Uh, the Jews are very concerned they can't work on the Sabbath. But there is a little, uh, a little kind of line or rule that says, if you live in a walled community, you can work. In other words, if you're in a siege or a walled community, you can work. So what they've done is they've stretched little cotton around a really large area of Manchester that says, this is the wall around our community, therefore we can work. That's called what? It's called legalism, isn't it? Now, I'm not criticizing them as bad people. I'm just saying, true for them as it was in that Jesus' day. You know, it was all about keeping the rules. So you'd expect Jesus to say, okay, let's evaluate your idea of what's good and bad. Let's ask you the questions. He says, you know the commandments, do not murder... Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. What's the odd one out in that list? This one, do not defraud, is not in the Ten Commandments. What do you think Jesus is, what's Jesus driving at by asking these questions? I think he's asking, the, did you get your money by, by exploitation? It's interesting, I watched 12 Years a Slave, incredibly moving film last week, and... Um, the guy, this is not a spoiler, it's just a little moment in the film, but the guy who's the star is trying to be really, really good to, uh, as it were, ingratiate himself to the slave master. And one of his friends, uh, a lady who's had her children separated, is wailing very loudly. And there's this, this discussion about, you know, what are you doing? Why are you wailing and stuff? She criticizes the star, um, Solomon criticizes the staff for trying to suck up to the slave master. And he said, I'm trying to survive. And Mr. So-and-so, his name I forget, he is a good man. And she said, he is still a slaver. He's still a slaver. He might be a good man, but he's still a slaver. His wealth has been gotten by murder, 1.8 million, died in the boats, don't commit adultery. The film's got that in there. It's got stealing, he's kidnapped, he's lying, defrauding, separation of families. I think Jesus might be just going through a random list about murdering and stuff like that. But I think he's asking the exploitation question. Have you got your money from exploitation? Have you got it from lying and from cheating and deceiving? And I know I told you last week about my tweet that I, about sort of foolishly comparing it to a football match, which I regret, and I told you about that. But actually, I feel 
in one sense, we're all kind of wealthy because of that slave trade still. You know, we're the sixth largest economy partly because of that. So it's very difficult to distance yourself. I'm not letting my politics show it's a fact. It's very difficult to distance yourself from that kind of exploitation. And so the man looks at, Jesus looks at this man, he probably would have had slaves, yes? In this culture, if he's rich, he probably would have had slaves. Let's not kid ourselves. If he's a ruler, he would have had slaves. And he looks him in the eye and says, have you exploited anybody to get your wealth? Is your wealth ill-gotten? And what does the man say? No. No. All these things I have kept since a boy. My wealth is gained with justice and fairness and honesty. I've never sinned in any of these ways. What would you think? You're right. Yeah, yeah. You know, somebody very wealthy, some of us, we might point the question and say, yeah, 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 have you got it honestly? Jesus doesn't do that though, does he? He doesn't question his integrity. He believes him. So we've got no reason to not believe this man, that he's kept all the rules. He's actually a really good man, and in many ways he should be blessed with finance in his understanding, and also in God's economy. Jesus accepts his assertion. What is he saying about money? At that point, that's the answer to the first question, is money good or bad? What's he saying about money? Money is neutral. It's not good or bad. If you've acquired it sinfully, it's bad. If you hold it too tightly, it's bad. It's not necessarily, we can't though, however, say whether you've got money is to do with whether you've been good or bad. Money's neutral in that sense. And Jesus doesn't question his motives. He just does something lovely. He says, he looked at him intently. That's kind of like saying he looks inside of him and it says he loved him. Now, if you read Mark's Gospel, he doesn't say that anywhere else. Now, we know that Jesus loves us and looks intently inside of us, but there's something about this man that makes Jesus love him. Perhaps he feels the man's feels compassion for the man's search for truth. What must I do to have eternal life? I feel there's something missing. Perhaps he feels compassion about that. Perhaps he just feels a sense of affinity. Here's another guy, probably about 30, who's rich. We don't know if Jesus was financially rich or not. But here's another guy like me, with authority. Maybe there's affinity. I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But Jesus, it says, looked at him and loved him. Now, what, what he says next, so when Jesus looks at him and loves him, in one sense, he's not trying to hide what's about to happen next. He's not trying to soften what's about to happen next, because actually, Jesus doesn't telegraph what happens next. He says this, you lack one thing. You lack one thing. Obviously, he says, go and sell everything you have. He says, you lack one thing. The man was probably very rich and young, and he's probably good-looking. My observation is that actually good-looking is less to do with genetics and more to do with economics. You know? Nice clothes, nice food, nice hair. I mean, you know, you, it, it actually can make yourself look good. He's, he's apparently on the surface um, got everything together. He, he appeared to have it all, but he didn't have it all together because Jesus says... You lack one thing. 
And the guy comes and asks him the question, doesn't he? And the very fact he asked him the question says what? There's something missing. There's something missing. What must I do to have eternal life? How can I be sure? I'm, I'm, I'm missing something. One of the most telling observations, uh, and it was in the, it's in the Alpha Talks, but it's something that you find if you talk to lots of people. But the first Alpha Talk, the guy who's giving the Alpha Talk, and I've mentioned this before, he talks about a rich friend of his who's climbing the ladder in, in, in economics, in banking, and he gets to the top of his profession, and he says a telling comment. He says, I got to the top and found there was nothing there. I got to the top and found there was nothing there. And I believe it's true with materialism, with popularity, with influence, even with religious morality, that you can climb to the top and find there's nothing there. You lack something. So this young man's asking, is there something else? Have I missed something? You know, I seem to have all my life together, but actually there's something missing. I missed something. Have I overlooked something? And the truth is, If you trust in yourself and your circumstances and your ability to get it done, you'll always feel something lacking. How do I know that? Because that's what I'm like. When I look at my circumstances, my tendency, and you think, oh, I'm not joining this church. But my tendency is to think, yeah, I will pray, but actually my tendency is to think, what can I do to sort it? And 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 I struggle. I struggle to to just think, God, it's you. And I'm not saying we do, we do nothing and we'd be lazy. But the truth is, if you try to work your way to God, I'm not trying to work my way to God, please don't mishear that. But, but if you try to do that, you'll always feel, am I good enough? Is there something missing? Is there uh, there's something lacking? I feel insecure. There's a doubt. It really, have I really ticked all the boxes? Have I really kept all the rules? Have I really, really done that? Have I really exploited somebody? Have I really done those things? And he can feel that. And he's got this one thing you lack. Now, interestingly, you kind of know the answer to this because you're good little churchgoers, probably. But if you were to turn to the person next to you and they said, okay, I'll give you a piece of paper, write on it one thing you lack and fold it and give it to the person next to you and they promise Secret Santa Special to get it for you. Yeah? What would you write? What would you write? You lack one thing. You can talk to each other if you want. What would you want? You're supposed to say, Jesus, yes, I know, Josh. (laughs) And if you do, praise God. One thing you lack. Let's ask a question about this church. What do we lack? We haven't got everything together. What do we lack? It's often easy, when you look at that slide that we put it week by week, say, well, what we lack is money. If we had money, we could get it done. And actually, it's foolish. It's as foolish as you saying, if I had that or that or that. In fact, I used to moan about not having a big telly, didn't I? Do you remember that? A few years back, I used to moan about having a big telly. And somewhere, somebody bought me a big telly to just to shut me up. <laughs> so I'm not going to moan about the fact that my suite is ripped and the springs are broken. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> but one thing you lack. It's easy to write resources, isn't it? It's easy to write on that piece of paper, I lack resources. Whether you've got a lot or a little, you can lack resources. 
You can feel it's resources that I need. So if you've got no money, you can think, well, that person there in this church, or I know, who's got loads of money, well, they don't lack resources. But I, in my small corner, on my situation, you know, whatever, on benefits or on my own earning, I lack resources. So really what I need is that. But this person here, you know the tragedy? We've, I've quoted it many times. Henry Rockefeller, one of the richest guys in the world, said, what, how much money do you need? The answer is, just a little bit more. Wherever you are on the scale, it's easy to write resources. One thing I lack is resources. But rarely does somebody of wealth, like this young man, come looking for truth. He knows there's something missing. He's got everything, but he's missing something. Then Jesus delivers his surgical incision, doesn't he? It's almost like the scalpel's out, and he just goes right in there. Okay, let's get to the heart of this. Go and sell all you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. And the young man's heart is very close to his wallet, or his wallet's very close to his heart, and he goes... Jesus is saying, I want you to imagine a life without money. I want you to imagine it all gone. All your mansions your servants, your influence, your nice restaurants, your holidays, your comfortable clothes. I want you to imagine it all gone. I want you to imagine it belonging to someone else. In this case, he said, give it to the poor. I want to imagine it giving it to someone else. And all you can have is me. We all go as good Christians. Well, I signed up for that. Oh, I signed up for that. Yeah, yeah, that's what what happened when I became a Christian. But when you look at our bank balances or our credit cards, overloads, or the things that are down there, what do they say about what we really want? What happens is one of the saddest moments in the whole Bible. It says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now you at this point, abdicate and think, well, I haven't got great possessions, so that wouldn't be me. But that's, in fact, you live in the sixth richest country in the world, you have got possessions. The man who Jesus had looked at and loved walked away. He weighed his money in one hand and Jesus in the other and walked away. Let's finish this phrase. His problem was not that he had money, but his money had him. He believed that without his money, he wasn't himself. The money, his money was at the core of his identity, the core of who he was. To lose his money was to lose himself. If I lost that, if I lost that, if I lost that, what would I be like? And it works in all spheres of life. I remember a friend of mine who said to me, um, he was in leadership in the church in Manchester that we led, leading a youth project. And what happened was, for some various reasons, not because of sin, but for various reasons, his ministry was taken away from him. So he wasn't involved in the church, he was doing other things. And his whole walk with God fell away. Because actually, his identity and his core was in his ministry. And you can put whatever, it doesn't have to be money, you can put everything in there. What were you going to give away? What's your identity? What's your core in? So I have to ask myself the question, if I didn't have this job, would I still love Jesus? Would I, would I still have my sense of identity, my core, my core, would I? And if you lack this or that, what would you do? But he went away, he weighs it. He said, he wasn't enough without his money. And he went away sorrowful. In Mark's Gospel, that word sorrowful appears one other place one other place or actually sorrow 
sorrow, this kind of deep sadness. He didn't just go away and say, oh, well, I'm not doing doing Jesus. He said he was overcast, sorrowful, deeply saddened. The only place where that occurs is Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. You might know the story. Last Supper, Jesus has said, I'm about to die. He goes into the garden for a moment of, of, of prayer, of closeness with his Father, and suddenly he sees the horror of the cross opened up to him, and it says... Uh, Jesus, he says, he sweat great drops of blood and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Why such grief for Jesus? Why such grief for Jesus? Because he was about to experience the ultimate what? Self-denial. The ultimate crushing separation from the thing he loved most, which was what? Not money, but his father. The young prince of heaven, the rich young ruler, was going in the final moments of his journey from riches to poverty. This is a journey that began in heaven. Jesus left the riches of his father's love, joy, delight, and infinite glorious goodness, became a man, and it ended with him where? Naked, alone, dying in the darkness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the garden, Jesus felt the crushing sorrow of the prospect of carrying our sin and being separated from the one thing he treasured most, his father's love. Paul puts it in Corinthians like this. I'll read the whole thing and then we'll pick out the verse. Just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. He's going to say, well, let's see how, how your money tells the story of your love. And he compares it with who? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might inherit, you might become rich. Jesus is saying, I'm going into a poverty deeper than anyone has ever known. I'm going to give it all away. Why? For you. Now, you give away everything to follow me. I am going to give away my big all to get you. I'm asking you to give away your little all to follow me. I won't ask you to do anything I haven't done already. I am the ultimate rich young ruler who's given away the ultimate wealth to get you. Now give away yours to have me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. He wasn't prepared to make the train. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And his disciples were amazed at his words, and he said to them again, Children, the bit before is about children. I'm not going to that, but it says, How difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's hard. How do you get to God? How are you good enough for God? It's easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said, Well, we're all busted. How can anyone be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible. What did Jesus pray in the garden about the cup? He said, Father, if it's possible, I don't want to go this way, but not what I want, but what you want. It's impossible if you go your own way. It's impossible if you go your own way. 
Now, it's interesting, we don't like this illustration, do we? So actually, uh, as Christians have become rich over the years, I'm nearly done, as people become rich over the years, Christians become middle class and comfortable, that what they've tried to do, and what we've tried to do, is to say, well, Jesus didn't really mean that, did he? It didn't really mean it's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It must mean something else. It's a bit like, don't hate your father and mother and follow me. I think, I can't have really meant that. What, what, what have you heard? Have you heard any illustrations of this? What's it? Go on, Paul. Yes, it's a mythical story that there's a gate in the, in the wall of Jerusalem that's quite small and the camels could only get through it if they lost their merchandise, their welfare baggage and went down on one knee as if camels, you know, how they do when, when they're kind of not on one and they could go through that way. It's basically a way of saying, it's not impossible. There must be a way for rich people. Or another one that I read is actually the word, um, the word uh, camel actually sounds like the Aramaic word for twine or for rope. In other words, you know what you're like if you're trying to thread a needle. Yeah? So, well, it's, try, it's quite hard to get rope through there. Yeah? So they say, well, but it's not impossible. But actually, he's not saying that. The, Jesus, the disciples knew what Jesus meant. What did they say? No one can be saved. If the, if the rich people that God is blessing can't be saved, who can be saved? No one can be saved. But this is not a comment on the evils of exploitative nature of money. It's not, a, it's not a comment on how hard it is for people with money to find Jesus. It's a comment on how hard it is for anyone, anyone to find Jesus. If you want to save yourself, whatever you trust in, Unless the love of God draws us, unless the grace of God becomes so irresistible that we let everything go, we hold so tightly, we can't have him. We can't have other saviours and have Jesus as our saviour. Hearts are full of anything but Jesus. They will not be satisfied. He is the one thing we lack. Now it's interesting, it's not a coincidence that everything Jesus warns us not to build our lives on money... Ten times more than he says, don't build your life on sex and relationships. Tim Keller says this, money has always been one of our most common saviours. You might not love your money more than God, but your ability to go to restaurants, to have lovely holidays, to have a nice house or a few new things, to have friends and influence that money brings, or you hope it might bring, is probably more important than we realise. He goes on, how do you know your money isn't just money to you? It's neutral. How do you know it's neutral? Here are some signs. If your money's not neutral, you can never give it away. You can never give it away. Not large amounts. I think. He says, if you're scared, you might have less than you've been accustomed to having. Your money's more money to you. If you see people doing better than you, and even though you've worked harder and you think you're a better person, that gets under your skin. Money's more than money to you. Fight for your rights to spend your time on and your money on yourself. If you think, I need my time to spend my money on myself, money's more than money. He says, then money's no longer just a scorecard. 
It's the essence of your identity. No matter how much money you have, though intrinsic, it's, intrinsically it's not evil, it's has incredible power to keep us from God. So the answer then, and we finish, and it challenges me, because I can do my little bit of giving like a Jewish North Manchester person. This is what I'm supposed to give. What do I give to the poor? What, what do I give when it, when it hurts me? What, what, what do I give when it's sacrificial? In that passage that we had in, in Corinthians, uh, Paul says, let's compare. Let's compare your generosity to others. See that you excel in this grace of giving. Am I not commanding you? I want to test the sincerity of love by comparing it with the generosity of Jesus. Our generosity, our giving, is to be compared with Jesus' self-giving. The real standard of generosity is not the person next to you or the expectations of your church or your family. The standard is the cross. What does my bank statement, what does your bank statement say how much Jesus' sacrifices, sacrifice moves us or melts us? Does it say, well, I moved a few quid? I moved 10%. 10% of me has moved. Oh, I moved a little. I ask myself and ask you, have you let his amazing self-giving love drain money of its importance to you? Tim Keller says this, I'll finish. The only way to counteract the power of money in your life is to see the ultimate rich young ruler who gave it away, everything, to come after you, to rescue you to love you. The challenge for this morning is, is to say, what, what, do we, what does the, our money say about our lives? And I don't believe that Jesus draws a line and say, you over there wealthy need to ask the question about money, and you over here, I'm not doing it with that and that, but you over here have no question to ask because you have got enough. If you write on your card, one thing I lack is resources, then the fact is you'll never be satisfied. We've got to tear up that bit of paper and write, one thing I lack is him. More of you. It's always the same application every week, isn't it? You think, why do I come and hear the same thing every week? Because you know why? Because my hand is tightly grasped onto my staff. And Jesus' hands were open and he let go of it all. God, how much do I value who you really are? A few quid? I'll text to Comic Relief once a year, five quid, text me five, whatever, and feel good about myself. I'll give my 10% into the church or whatever. How much do I love him? How much do we love him? If I've touched your wallet, it's because Jesus is after your heart. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.